The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, the light is Christ on it, hopefully. We're in John chapter 1, so you'll want to turn there. Verses 9 through 13. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have your word before us this morning. And sometimes we just read it over quickly and move on. And we pray this morning that your word would work in our lives, that it would teach us, instruct us, convict us, do whatever work it is that we need. We ask your spirit to bring your word to bear upon all the issues of our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine with me, uh, if you will, it's Christmas Eve. And your long-lost cousin has suddenly appeared at your house on Christmas Eve. He's been off making his fortune in foreign lands, and uh, so you haven't seen him since you were both kids, but now he's come to spend the holidays with you. And of course, you welcome him into your home. And the next morning is Christmas Day, and after everyone's opened their presents, we know everybody opens their presents on Christmas Day, not the night before. Everyone's opened presents, and he says, I have one more present. And he takes you outside and points to a brand new BMW, fully equipped, sitting in the driveway. And he flips you the keys and says it's yours. Now I want you to stretch your imagination even farther and see yourself responding to this incredible gift of this brand new gorgeous car with a yawn. You sort of look at it and look at the keys and say, you know, it's time for breakfast and I need some coffee and you turn and go back into the house. And your cousin follows you in saying, no, I really mean it. I'm giving you this car. It's all yours. But, you know, now you've kind of settled in the living room. You've got the remote and you're looking for the first game of the day. Everyone else in the family is excited. In fact, they take the car out for a spin, but you're pretty apathetic about the whole thing. In fact, by the end of the day, you're so sick and tired of hearing about the BMW that you go into the garage, get a sledgehammer, and smash it to pieces. Now, that may sound like a silly illustration, but think about it. Isn't that what we've done with the true light that God sent into the world? I mean, our passage today teaches us the astonishing truth that the true light of God has been sent into the world, God's Son in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also teaches us the equally astonishing truth that when he came, we pretty much wouldn't have much to do with him. Even worse, we sought to destroy him. 
And these verses report the tragic indifference and the destructive rebellion of men and women against God precisely at that point where he shines brightest in our lives. And the most remarkable thing that could ever happen is that God has given us the most precious thing he could possibly give us, and we've taken a sledgehammer to it, to him. John speaks of Jesus Christ as the true light that comes into the world. And so far, we've been looking at the opening verses of John 1, and back in verse 4, we read, in him, in Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. And we learn that Jesus is not only the life, but also the light. And that's another claim he makes for himself in John 8. He says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it is Jesus himself who shines in the darkness. John 1, 5, uh, we read, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the power of his light exposes the darkness of our hearts. And the warmth of his light calls us to him. As David wrote in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So I believe that Christ wants us to live in him in the light. Not to live away from him in the darkness of a world that doesn't understand him. And later on, John would write in 1 John uh, 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it's the same message today. It's the message he wants us to share with others and for that to happen and for others to believe what we say that we must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really do believe it. And we must know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings meaning to each one of our lives, and we must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives, reigns, and is coming again. And we have to be able to tell other people in a way that they can understand. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John. Key verse, and I'm going to go over it again and again and again, is John 20, uh, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So before we dive into the text, we need to be reminded of what it is that we're reading. So let's look, start by looking at the overall prologue. That's the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Now, have you ever been invited to someone's house, you know, perhaps for a cookout? You've never been there before. I mean, he seems like a regular sort of guy. Perhaps it's a guy from work. He's three cubes down in the cubicle farm you've been sentenced to work in. And he's invited you over for a cookout, you know, grill some uh, burgers and dogs and watch the big game on Sunday. And so you say, sure, and you get directions. And Sunday comes and you drive out there, and he lives in the country, and you go through a small village, and just outside of town, you come to an old road, and there's this old wooden sign with his name on it and a creaky mailbox, you know, half hanging off the post. So you turn into the driveway and start up this driveway, and of course, in the country, so it's a dirt driveway. And you notice the driveway is lined with daffodils, and then they're, they're planted... Um, in front of uh, rhododendron bushes, and it looks really nice. And you pull up 
to this house. It's one of those big old stone mansions, you know, with the tall white pillars and a big front porch. And there's your friend emerging from the pillars, walking down the steps, coming to greet you. You're sort of wondering about all this. And approaching John's gospel is a bit like approaching a grand old imposing house. Most of you, hopefully, as readers of the Bible, know that this gospel is, is not quite like the other gospels. You may have heard or you may uh, have begun to discover that it's got hidden depths of meaning. And like a, a grand old house, its structure and ideas are imposing, but it's not meant to scare you off. Instead, it makes you feel welcome. And coming down the steps to meet you is none other than a friend, the one whom the book is all about. And like many grand old houses, the book has a driveway bringing you uh, off the main road, telling you something about the place you're coming to before you actually get there. And these 18 verses are, in fact, such a complete introduction. They're the, they're the driveway to the house. And they're such a complete introduction. By the time you get to the story, you already know a good deal about what's coming and what it means. And the more we explore John's gospel, the more we'll discover what a complete introduction to it these few verses really are. So with that understanding, let's dive into this morning's text. We'll see, first of all, in verse 9, the light revealed. The light revealed. Should be the first blank in your outline there. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Now, if we're to understand this verse properly, we need to understand at the outset that it's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and not, as some uh, versions indicate, uh, the coming of light into the lives of men. It's about the coming of Christ, which enlightens everyone, but it's not about enlightening everyone. It's about Jesus coming. In the Greek text that stands behind our English Bibles, the word translated coming refers to the light. And that's the way it's translated here. In this verse, the reference is to the incarnation of Christ, not to the enlightenment of men. This is the view of all the major commentators and the view reflected in the uh, English Standard Version as well as the New International and there are several reasons why this is to be preferred. Besides the fact the Bible nowhere supports the idea of an inner light for every man. The phrase coming into the world is frequently used by John to describe the coming of Christ. Thus at the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes in John 6, the multitude exclaimed, it said, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Martha talking to Jesus in John 11. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In John 16, uh, in his upper room uh, discourse, Jesus said, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And then finally in his last days, when he's before Pontius Pilate, he answers Pilate in John 18. We read, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So it's very important we understand that the true light, Jesus Christ, is coming into the world. 
And that's what this text is saying. He's arrived. He's here. Second, it fits in the whole context of John chapter 1. It proceeds from the ministry of Jesus before the incarnation through that, all the preparation work of John the Baptist to a description of Jesus and his life and how people respond to it. Um, and so it, it fits and flows together very perfectly. At first it says the light was coming into the world was the true light. In the Greek language, there's two different but related words almost always translated true in our Bibles. And the first is the word aletheis, which means true as opposed to false. If you were to make a statement in a court of law, it would be either true or false, right or wrong. But that's not the word that John uses here. He uses a similar word called uh, alethinos. And that means true as opposed to partial. Or as we would say, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. As opposed to just part of it. And so we say that the light of the Lord Jesus Christ was the true light, besides which all other lights are imperfect or partial or misleading. Unfortunately, people always mistake the partial lights for the real ones. And we take something that may be good and we make that the whole truth when it is not. A couple examples. Uh, one light for years and years uh, that people followed was the idea and the light of progress. A belief in progress based on the discoveries of science and reason uh, characterized in the modern age and modernity. It was linked at least psychologically to the theory of evolution. And people followed the light of progress in droves. But the dream of progress burst uh, like a bubble in the 20th century histories of two world wars and endless conflicts. And most people today are willing to admit the doctrine of inevitable progress was an illusion. Except for some liberal academics, but most people. Another partial light, and I think this one's uh, a lot more powerful, for us, related to progress is the issue of prosperity and particularly the pursuit of prosperity. I mean, we follow that dream to great excess here in America and particularly in Loudoun County. Thanks to us, much of the world also follows it now or at least would like to. And this is the idea that happiness comes from an annual salary increase and more and newer cars and bigger homes and summer homes and absurdly expensive vacations. And once again, these things have limited benefit. I mean, they're at least relatively better uh, than the kind of ad abject poverty we find in much of Africa, the Middle East, India, or the Far East. I mean, that's, it's better than death by starvation, better than illiteracy, better than unemployment. But it's not the way to contentment. They don't make the heart of man right with God. There's plenty of people around here who, you know, live in huge houses and have all the toys and are miserable. That's a few years ago, in the midst of what is easily the most prosperous age the world has ever known, Time magazine said we live in an age of anxiety. And as I went back and looked at that article, it was very interesting because the, the point of the article was not just that we live in an age of anxiety, but that we could find no cure. 
The world's lights are not necessarily false lights, but they're imperfect lights. They're partial lights. And they don't provide what we need to satisfy the inner hunger of our souls. And John is saying the place where men and women can find adequate uh, illumination about themselves and about life under God is in Jesus Christ. We're to look to him. And those who do that will find... um, that he is the one that can guide them through the darkest nights, who enables them to distinguish between lights that are better and lights that are worse, and who can cause them to grow spiritually. But that's not what most people do. They don't look to Christ. In fact, they look away from him. And John says that very clearly in verses 10 and 11, and thus we see the light rejected the light rejected. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus the unknown. It's kind of a puzzling thought. I suppose in our time, the best known person in the whole history of the world is Jesus Christ. His name is known not only in the West, but also in the East, indeed, in all the farthest corners of the world. His name is on millions of tongues daily. And yet John is telling us that for some 30 years from the birth of Christ until the time of the public ministry of John the Baptist, the Lord of glory was in the world of men and was unknown. And that fact points a very uh, instructive finger, I think, at the extent of the depravity of man. For it shows us that men and women are spiritually blind. It says they didn't know him and they didn't receive him. Why didn't the world know and recognize Jesus Christ when he was present? And the first answer to that question is that they didn't want to. And we know um, just from our lives, from our experience, uh, that if if you don't want to see a truth, you won't see it. Exactly the same way, men and women don't, uh, they didn't recognize Jesus Christ primarily because they didn't want to. And a text that puts this uh, theologically is found in John 3, uh, verse 19, just a couple chapters later. It says, And this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Jesus was the light of the world. When he came into the world, his light shone upon men's darkness, revealed the darkness for what it was, and men hated him for that. And they wouldn't acknowledge him to be God's son, the true light, the Lord of glory. They simply didn't want to acknowledge Christ back then, and they don't want to acknowledge him now. And the point of John's statement is is that men and women are so in love with their own sins that they don't want anybody to dissuade them from them. We spend enormous amount of energy trying to rationalize and justify our sin. I don't think most of us are actually very good at repentance, but sometimes we're experts at sin management. The second reason why the world didn't know Christ at his coming is they were unable to recognize him. That is, not only did they not want to see him, they just couldn't see him. They were spiritually blind. 
It's pretty much what we read in Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, he said, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And that's a picture of man's spiritual inability or blindness. And a result of such blindness, Christ went unrecognized. When we understand that this is an accurate picture of man as God sees him, then we also understand why John the Baptist had to come, had to appear as Christ's forerunner. What was John the Baptist's ministry? The Apostle John says that he came to bear witness to the light. And the point is that if he had not come to bear witness to the light, no one, including the disciples, would have noticed him. Jesus was the light. He was in the world. But the world went about its business until John the Baptist came, crying and pointing, he is the light. He is the light. And yet when that was said, the world looked up with sightless eyes and asked, what is light? And they didn't respond until God reached down and began to touch their eyes so that they might see. And some of those Peter later wrote, which we read in our responsive reading this morning, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If we understood the significance of the fact that men and women didn't recognize Jesus Christ when he came into the world, then we've begun to understand three of the most important teachings of John's gospel, and we're not very far into it yet. The first is the glory of Jesus Christ. And the second is the depravity of man, which is taught throughout Scripture. And the third is the necessity of God's sovereign and unconditional election as the basis of our salvation. And everything we've said so far substantiates the first two points. The glory of Christ is evident. The depravity of man is demonstrated by the spiritual blindness of all people apart from the unmerited grace of God in their lives. And if there's any doubt, we just need to ask, after the light of the world was pointed out by John the Baptist, what did men do about him? And weigh the answer. And the answer is that people who had been forced to look upon Christ Men responded not by falling down and worshiping him as they should have, but by crucifying him. The cross of Christ is the response of fallen men to God's goodness. And the third of John's teachings, the need for the sovereign and unconditional election of men by God as the basis of their salvation, flows from the first two. In fact, is taught just a few verses farther on. In John's gospel, it's true that people are totally unable to seek or find God on their own. Then the only basis by which anyone ever finds God is that God comes seeking them. We have two very important themes in the prologue to John's gospel, the glory of Christ and the depravity of man. And the glory of Jesus is described in verses one through nine. The depravity of man is shown by man's rejection by saying they didn't know him, they didn't recognize him when he came. And these two themes leave us with a a kind of a depressing picture at the end of verse 11. 
The men didn't know Jesus by and large, and even his own people who should have known better rejected him. And are we to think then that nobody believed? No, that would be wrong. That would be false. So John hurries to point out that although the Lord of glory was unknown by the world at large and was rejected by his own people, nevertheless, there were some who did receive him. And so we see in verses 12 and 13, the light received. And we're going to just camp out in these two verses for the rest of the morning. These are great verses, especially since it comes after such a dismal picture in verses 10 and 11. They're verses for you personally. They remind us here at the very beginning of the gospel, even before the account of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that the gospel of salvation by grace alone, apart from the keeping of the law, is freely offered today to all. And the important part of these verses is the part that declares uh, that we become God's children, not on the basis of any human authority, but on the authority of Christ. Those verses say, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And at that point, somebody could say, that's wonderful. It must be a great privilege to be God's child. But how do I become God's child? How does this relationship become mine? And the answer, the same answer given throughout the New Testament, is that you become a child of God through faith. It means that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, of which you're one, and believe that by means of his death and resurrection that he is your Savior. Lots of verses in the Bible. I've picked out a few. Uh, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe. The words believe and faith come from the same Greek word. Must believe that he exists. He rewards those who seek him. Romans 1, 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, but as a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And again, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And it's the same in the opening uh, verses of John's gospel. We're going to see that again and again. Uh, in John 3, Jesus talks with Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And God uses this image of birth because it alone shows the initiative lies with the father and not with the child. I mean, what did you have to do with your birth? Do you say, I'd like to be a boy and I'd like to be born to Mrs. and Mrs. Smith? They seem to be pretty nice people. Or I'd like to be a girl, five foot, you know, six inches tall, blonde hair. Of course not. You had nothing to do with it. Your father met your mother and between them they produced you. You only re realized what happened afterward, a long time afterward. And it's obvious that God uses this image that he does so to show us that he alone is responsible for your salvation and that you believe 
only because he first created the life within you to do it. Theologically, we would say that regeneration precedes faith. Do you have that faith because the Holy Spirit has already picked you out and started to work in your heart? And there's lots of verses in the Bible showing that the basis of our sonship or being a child of God lies in God's electing love. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Ephesians 1, 5, we read God has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. James 1, 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. If you exalt yourself, if you exalt uh, anyone else, if you exalt man in general in your thinking so that he is able to take care of himself spiritually and eventually inch his way, work his way uh, into heaven, then there's not a whole lot of need for God. But if man is placed where he should be and where the Bible places him dead and trespasses and sins with a depraved will, utterly without any genuine spiritual potential, then God will be where he belongs. He will be great and mighty and altogether lovely as he really is. And the Christian who's come to see these things will look up from you know, the dung heap of this world, still covered with the world's garbage, and say, oh God, how could you love me? And when he gets to that point, the love of Christ will begin to get a hold of him. And he'll begin to learn that God has set things up this way so it'll be with the bonds of love that we are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a pity that we're not able to give an exposition of the whole Gospel of John at one time, although it'd, it'd be really good. It'd be a little long. Because someone could conceivably stop at this point and say, well, there's nothing for me to do at all. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the initiative is with God and salvation and that no one would believe in Christ unless God had taken that first step of planning his own life within that person. But I have to add, and I'll be adding it as we go through John, that when God takes the first step in saving us, we become able to obey him and follow his leading. And by our rebirth, we're initiated into an entirely new series of relationships within his family. Verses 12 and 13 are so important because they tell you how we become children of God. I want to fix your, in your minds this question. Not everyone is a child of God, am I? I mean, ask it, that to yourself right now. Not everyone is a child of God, am I? And the difference it makes to you is this. Listen to Jesus' words in John 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. In other words, if we aren't children, then we're slaves. And the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The children do. And what is at stake in becoming a child of God is eternal life. So ask yourself that question again. Not everyone is a child of God, am I? Now add to it, not everyone will have eternal life. Will I? And so we turn to these two verses, 12 and 13, for the all-important answer to the question, how do you become a child of God? 
What would have to happen this morning to make you a child of God? And if you're a child of God, do you understand how you became one? Can you lead another person into God's family? Verse 12 sets two conditions, receiving Jesus and believing Jesus. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers himself to you, you welcome him into your life for what he is, not what you want him to be. If he comes to your life as savior, you welcome his salvation. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome his leadership. If he comes to you as provider, you welcome his provision. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as protector, you welcome his protection. If he comes to you as the authority, you welcome his authority. And if he comes to you as king, you welcome his rule. Receiving Jesus means taking Jesus into your life for what he is. And he is all of those things. It doesn't mean sort of a peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims on your life. You know, like he can stay in the house as long as he doesn't play his music too loud. Think about when Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth, we read in Luke 4, initially the people received him gladly. It says all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They said, this is not Joseph's son. But a few verses later, after he sort of had tweaked their pride a little bit, it says they were filled with wrath and they tried to throw him off a cliff. They were happy to receive him while his words were pleasing. But when their pride got fingered, they rejected him. Receiving Jesus doesn't mean a peaceful coexistence with a Christ who makes no claims on your life. Receiving Jesus means taking him into your whole life, including your home, your school, your work, your marriage, your dreams, every aspect of your life for who he really is. And that's the first condition in verse 12, receiving Jesus, the light of the world. The second condition is believing on his name. It says, who believed in his name. Well, what does that mean? Let's do a quick tour of John's gospel to find out. First look at John 3.18. See, the believing in the name of Jesus is virtually the same as believing in Jesus. There it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So believing in him and believing in the name are used interchangeably. The name just emphasizes the full uh, stature and dignity and authority of the person. Next look at John 5, where receive and believe are used again. Close connection to the way they are in chapter 1. It says, I've become in I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see what verse 44 implies about believing? It implies you can't believe in Jesus if you love the praise and glory of men. That means believing is so contrary to pride and exalting yourself that it involves a deep humbling. It means abandoning the craving for human praise and caring more about the praise of God. Believing is not merely intellectual assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Next in John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me 
shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this verse teaches that believing in Jesus means being satisfied with Jesus. It means that Jesus is the food and that feeds that hunger in your soul. It's not just an intellectual assent to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. We could go on. We come back to this in John 8 and again in John 12. And all these texts show that believing is a deep work of the heart, not just agreeing with doctrinal facts. It includes breaking free from the praise, uh, of the craving for praise that we get from other people and being satisfied with Jesus as the bread of life. You might paraphrase verse 12 like this, but all who receive Jesus into their lives for who he really is and who feed upon him as the all-satisfying bread of life, to them he gave authority to be children of God. But between us and eternal life, there's two great obstacles. One is that we're spiritually lifeless and dead. And the other is that we're sinfully corrupt and guilty. We can't inherit life as children of God if we're dead and guilty. But God so loved us, he did two things. He sent his spirit to cause us to be born again, to awaken our hearts, to shine light in our darkness, and to make us pass from death to life. And he overcomes that first obstacle. And then in perfect harmony with the work of his spirit, God sent his son to die for our sin to remove the guilt of uh, all who believe in him. So the moment we believe in him, even though we're sinners, we're authorized in Christ to lay hold of our inheritance as children of God. And the second obstacle is removed. And this is a great salvation for sinners like you and me. It's full and free and corresponds to our exact need and condition. And I offer it to you this morning in the name of Jesus. Receive him as he really is. Believe in him as the all-satisfying end to your search for peace and for truth and for meaning and for life. The final importance to this text uh, is that it gives the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ great boldness. There's a great story of Napoleon in one of his military campaigns when he was the emperor where he was trying to uh, quickly signed some papers and he dropped the reins of his horse. He was on horseback and uh, the horse re- reared up and he nearly fell off. And a corporal of the grenadiers, a, a lonely soldier, had leaped forward and grabbed the bridle of the emperor's horse so that it would come down and he wouldn't be thrown. In a few seconds, he had the animal under control. And Napoleon turned to the corporal and said, Thank you, Captain. And he said, Of what company, sire? asked the corporal who had just been called the captain. He said, of my guards. And in an instant, the young man threw his musket aside, walked across the field uh, towards the headquarters of the general staff, tearing off the corporal's stripes as he went. And he took his place among the emperor's officers. And someone asked what he was doing. He replied, he was the captain of the guards. They said, by whose authority? He said, by the authority of the emperor. See, it all depends on the authority of the commander involved. If the soldier's friends had called him a captain, the two corporals would have had a good laugh together, but nothing would have come of it. But the title bestowed by a friend would have meant nothing. But when the emperor gave the order, the corporal seized upon it instantly and was received as a captain by the staff. 
In the same way, our position before God as God's children depends on the highest authority in the universe, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, before whom every knee shall bow. And we can be as bold in seizing our rank as Napoleon's soldier was in seizing his. Will we step back into the ranks and boast, Jesus has called me God's child, but fail to assume the privileges and the responsibilities of that position? Or will we take him at his word and come to God to enjoy all of the privileges of being one of his children? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand this verse properly, then you'll come to God as his child with great boldness. Beloved, the Christians to whom John wrote this great gospel were in a world very much like ours of religious cultic growth, false teachings of health and wealth, campaigns to save the republic or the empire or the nation, making Roman law or our judicial system absolute, and dealing with the intolerance of multinational and multicultural correctness. And they didn't go to church to hear any of that stuff. They didn't go to church to hear the pastor incorporate those things into his message. The first readers and the first hearers of John's gospel were hungry and thirsty for Christ, their spiritual food and drink. They were darkness seeking the light of the world. They were guilty, unworthy sinners in need of a lamb to bear their transgressions. And they eagerly read this gospel of the Christ, the Son of God, because he gave them what the world could not. And there are days when, like them, we're the ones in darkness, we're the ones who need the light. Because those who are most profoundly aware of their own sin and need, and in consequence most deeply feel the wonders of God's grace that has reached out and saved even them, are the ones most likely to talk about themselves as objects of God's love in Christ Jesus. And it's because we are the beloved, the ones so loved by him that he'll change us and transform us by grace alone. John was overwhelmed by Jesus' love for him in the midst of his sin, and we need to be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin. And a shallow understanding of how much we are loved will make us weak witnesses for Christ. We need to believe not just that the gospel is true, but that it is true for us. That's what will make us people who've been transformed by the love of Christ and will then have that same love for families, neighbors, students, bosses, even those who sit next to us at church. And perhaps we'll find ourselves putting the sledgehammer back in the garage. Let's pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we want to be people who receive Christ, who believe on his name, and it sounds so easy, and yet we know it's not. Even if we've done it once, there's days that we turn away, that we look away, that we don't have faith, that we don't believe. Father, we are people of weak faith. 
Father, we need that gift of faith that you give, that you say your spirit sends into each of our hearts. We need to believe what your word says. We need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we have life in his name. Father, pray this morning that your spirit would work powerfully in each and every one of the hearts here, that you would draw us to yourself and that we would respond to your love, that you would love someone even like us and that we would respond by receiving and believing in Christ. Father, we ask this morning for faith that we might do that and that we might do that every day that we would have the faith to believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. Father, do this for us. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray, amen.